Hello and welcome to The Technology Pill, a podcast that looks at how technology is reshaping our lives and explores the new powers of governments and companies. My name is Caitlin and I'm Napier's Senior Campaigns Officer, but today's episode unfortunately isn't about me. Instead, with Gus on holiday, hopefully having a really nice time, we're handing the podcast over to Alex, our Director of Strategy, whose voice you may recognise. She's talking to two academics, Noor and Yusuf, designing digital maternal health initiatives for use in Jordan and Lebanon. They talk about how to design health initiatives appropriately, different regulatory environments and risks, the impact of gender inequality, and using privacy protections and anonymity to build trust. Over to you, Alex. Caitlin, thank you for that introduction. And we're very happy to be hosting Noor and Yusuf today for this podcast. So we've got Noor, she's the manager of the Non-Governmental Organizational Initiative at the Global Health Institute, where she coordinates the Institute's El Saha program focused on e-health and digital health. And she also leads the implementation of a large-scale field-based project in undeserved communities in Lebanon, including refugee camps. We also have Yusuf. Yusuf is a professor of epidemiology and biostatistics at the Faculty of Medicine in Jordan University of Science and Technology. He is a fellow of Faculty of Public Health of the Royal College of Physicians of the United Kingdom through distinction. And we wanted to take the opportunity to also recognize the teams that they've been working with in both Jordan and Lebanon as part of the digital health interventions that they'll be presenting and discussing today with us. To get us started, I wanted to ask Noor and Yusuf to tell us a little bit of background about their projects so we can get a little bit more familiar with your work. And I'll be asking Noor first to talk a little about the Gamification, Artificial Intelligence and M Health Network for Maternal Health Improvements that they've been working on in Lebanon. Thank you, Alex. So the Gamification, Artificial Intelligence and M Health Network for Maternal Health Improvements is an interventional research project that is led by the Global Health Institute at the American University of Beirut and supported by IDRC. Our project started in 2020 and is still ongoing till now. We call our project GAIN-ME as an abbreviation. So GAIN-ME aims to actually improve maternal health and increase the uptake of antenatal care services among disadvantaged and refugee pregnant women in Lebanon. We decided to actually do the Game Me project because we thought that there are a lot of, you know, disadvantaged women and refugee women who are not accessing antenatal care services at primary health care centers as they should. We actually have three main target populations as part of Game Me. First, we have the pregnant women. Second, we have their partners or their spouses. And third, we have their health providers who are represented by OBGYN specialists and midwives practicing at primary healthcare centers in Lebanon. Each of these three target populations is actually targeted by a context-sensitive intervention that we design. Women are targeted by gestational age-specific educational and awareness messages in Arabic sent in both text and voice formats over their WhatsApps. Their spouse is the same. We have the messages that are specific to the gestational age of their wives. And the health providers are targeted by a professional development mobile application 
that is basically founded on two main concepts. One is the gamification concept. The second is artificial intelligence. And we tailored this application to actually serve as a platform for professional development and as a resource center for the OBGYN specialists and midwives that are providing care and services to the pregnant woman of our intervention. Great. Thank you, Noor, for that. And asking the same of Yusuf to share a little bit more about the initiative that you've been working out to strengthen voices and choices for family planning in, in Jordan. Yeah, sure, Alex. Our project actually is about mobile technology and enhanced counseling to improve family planning among Syrian refugees and host communities in Lebanon and Jordan. In fact, our project aims to develop, implement, and evaluate culturally sensitive, data-driven, and evidence-based strategies to encourage the use of quality family planning services among vulnerable host communities and Syrian refugees living in both countries, Lebanon and Jordan. Specifically, our project aims to develop and evaluate the visibility and effectiveness of enhanced couples counseling and the use of in-health to encourage contraceptive use. Our project is currently implemented in Jordan and Lebanon by the Eastern Mediterranean Public Health Network, Jordan University of Science and Technology, and American University at Beirut, funded and supported by IDRC. Thank you both for this introduction to the work that you've been doing. And the reason that we, we're coming together is the project that you, you've been working on really are touching on, on a variety of topics that we've seen you know, over the last few years with the increased digitization of health system and broadly the healthcare system, which is also a reflection you know, on the global level of a trend to use you know, data and technology to solve what are very complex problems. And the use of data and technology comes with a huge opportunities, but they also come with certain risks, you know, in terms of governance and data protection and associated with human rights implications of using data and technology, but also particularly in terms of your two projects, some key considerations around gender equality, issues around non-discrimination, but also looking at the local socioeconomic and political dynamics and how these can and should inform the design and deployment of digital health interventions. And so with, with this in mind, I'm really keen to hear from you both in terms of you know, the work that you've been doing for the last couple of years. What is your perspective when it comes to the current state of digital health in the MENA region, and particularly in relations to the digital health interventions that you've been working on? You know, the digital health maturity actually varies among the countries in the region. Some countries in MENA have digital health included in their national health or relevant national strategies and plans. However, most of them are facing implementation obstacles like socioeconomic disparities, conflicts, and population displacement on top of technological, financial, legal, ethical, and cultural challenges. The institutional structures in MENA, in fact, lag behind in terms of the creation of dedicated digital health governing bodies. The infrastructure for digital health and innovation is scarce, 
or fragmented in countries of the region, and there are major interoperability and connectivity challenges. Limited country capacities, scarce resources, and lack of a trained workforce for digital health and innovation are issues in the region, which are compounded by the concurrent demands for digital innovation in the light of the COVID-19 response. While some countries have implemented to some degree laws on data security and privacy and access to health information, other countries lack such laws and lack of protocols for regulating and certifying digital health services. Only few countries in the region have produced digital health professionals through specialized digital health programs. However, most country, countries' training programs are insufficient for the current demands, and that the career path in the public sector has not yet been established. Mm -hmm. In a brief, the digital health ecosystem in our region are less mature than the other regions. It'd be great to hear from you, Noor. Does what Yusuf just described, is that something that resonates and that you also had to consider within your own project? Definitely, Alec. There's no doubt that similar to it being a trend worldwide, the MENA region's interest in digital health has been increasing remarkably, that's for sure. Uh, however, we have, you know, in the MENA region, high-income countries, others that are low-income countries and that are affected by uh, several crises, including the refugee crisis, the economic crisis, and of course, the COVID-19 pandemic had a great impact on health systems of so many of these low-income countries. And therefore, you can see in the region, some countries, for example, like UAE, that have made a point to include digital health as a main component of their health strategy. And other countries like Lebanon that have been affected by conflict, by refugee crises, by economic crises, that have been actually still suffering, you know, to push the portfolio of digital health forward and integrating it as part of, you know, their own system. And therefore, in these countries specifically, at least I can speak for Lebanon, um, I can definitely say that there has been an increased interest in digital health interventions. We are seeing more and more academic institutions actually implementing projects related to digital health. But you can sense that it is, you know, still a bit shy, that perhaps there are some sort of conflicting priorities that are, you know, uh, moving the focus away from digital health and digital health interventions. However, I can, you know, talk about the Global Health Institute. We have a program that is dedicated to digital health and electronic health at the Institute. And since 2018, since the launch of the program, we have been implementing different projects related to digital health and electronic health, including creating electronic health records for refugees in Lebanon. The Gain Me project that we are focusing on in this podcast is another example. And so we are trying our best to push the digital health portfolio forward and uh, implement more and more digital health interventions, specifically those that are focused on, you know, closing the gender divide when it comes to digital health. I think what you both contributed so far indicates that there are similarities, but, you know, a global trends. 
but it also indicates that because of the the differences in, in how countries are, are governed, the structures they have in place, but also their history and the current socioeconomic and political situation means that, you know, you need a very strong understanding of that local context uh, and that it can't be a one-size-fit-all approach because every country may make different decisions, they might have different resources, and they might have also an existing health system that's different that they can build on when they're you know, starting to bring a more of a digital element to, to their digital healthcare system. As part of the work that you've both been doing in your respective projects, you know, you recently published a call to action on gender and digital health programs. What did you learn through your work that started off looking at, you know, digital health care and particularly looking at digital health in the context of maternal care? You know, that includes both antenatal, newborn and child health care. What did you learn through that work that encouraged you to advocate for a greater focus on gender and associated power dynamics? In fact, the first phase in our project was conducting formative research to inform the development of our intervention. So our formative research conducted among women and midwives showed that there are multiple underlying sociocultural factors that influence women's decision and use of contraceptives. One of the main barriers for family use in both countries, Jordan and Lebanon, is related to gender inequality and unequal power dynamics. Husbands, for example, have an influential role and perhaps the final say in deciding whether women use family planning services or not, as well as the type of method to use. In fact, some husbands could resort to physical violence if the wife refuses to bear children or uses family planning methods without the husband's consent. Mothers in law are also influential in family planning and family size decision in both countries. Thus, men's participation is crucial to success of family planning programs, women's empowerment, and better outcomes in contraceptive acceptance and continuation. On the other hand, the counseling process at a primary care, in Jordan at least, is criticized by women as inappropriate, very short, lacking a privacy, ignoring women's worries in using modern family planning methods, and not adequately informing women about different methods and their possible side effects. Another barrier also includes lack of knowledge and misconception about family planning methods. So we believe that digital intervention will overcome all of these barriers. Nor, in terms of what Yusuf was describing and having assessed first the current landscape and some of the issues, how did that inform your, your own work and the similar approach that I know you undertook at the beginning of your project in terms of speaking to different stakeholders and understanding the needs when it came to issues around gender and, and power dynamics? So, as mentioned, our project focuses mainly on antenatal care services and maternal health services. The team of the Global Health Institute has actually been engaged 
with refugees and with disadvantaged Lebanese women since its establishment. So for the past five years, our teams have been on the ground working directly with refugees in informal tented settlements and with Lebanese disadvantaged women within their communities. And these years, you know, of experience had made us develop a greater understanding about the different, you know, dynamics and the different factors that may play a role in influencing a woman's decision, whether to seek a certain health service or not. So a woman's decision to actually seek antenatal care services was actually, you know, related to so many factors. And this we were able to discover through direct engagement with the community members, interviews with them, even informal chats with them. And we were able to understand how the husband's support to the women would influence whether or not she would go and seek such antenatal care services, her mother's influence, her mother-in-law's influence, whether these antenatal care services are subsidized or not, whether they are available at a nearby primary health care center or not. So there are different factors that may play a role in actually, you know, encouraging a pregnant woman, a refugee pregnant woman or a disadvantaged Lebanese pregnant woman to actually seek these services or not. And these, you know, factors related to costs, to dynamics with family members, to even power dynamics with their husbands, they all, you know, they are all interrelated. So they influence uh, one another. So for example, you may encounter a woman that will tell you, I would prefer to buy a piece of bread for my family instead of paying for an antenatal care services as long as I'm not, you know, feeling any complication during my pregnancy. So, you know, they have conflicting priorities as well that would also influence their decisions. And therefore, when designing our intervention, we took these into consideration. We even took other factors that may play a role in the extent of these women benefiting from our intervention. So we took into consideration that if the woman is illiterate, she wouldn't be able to actually understand what we wrote as a WhatsApp message. So we decided that it would be good to actually record in Arabic and they lay language the messages as well. So we tried as much as possible, you know, to integrate such aspects that would enable us to decrease any potential inequity that may arise throughout the you know flow of the project. The points that you're just raising bring it slightly different to perspective when we often we're talking about digital health, we tend to focus on, you know, the fact that it's being promoted by the government and, you know, the governance infrastructure around designing and then deploying some of these systems. But what you're referring to are becoming at the individual community level, quite important contexts or situations or, you know, factors to keep in mind that need to actually relate to the everyday life of an individual and some of their opportunities, but also some of the constraints that might be facing that, even if you have a very good initiatives and that the idea is to enable better and more efficient access to healthcare, unless you also consider those dynamics at the individual or community level, then you might not have a breakthrough, you might not have an uptake. Is that something that you're seeing enough discussion about? You know, you mentioned already a few examples, but do you have other elements you want to bring in from your project and how you've been relaying those lessons learned to different stakeholders? You have a point, Alex, that our project, it actually came up from the community. So it was mm-hmm. tailored to the community and therefore we had to engage with community mm-hmm. members to be able to design a contextualized intervention. However, this actually does not mean that the intervention that we are proposing through this project cannot be scalable and included at the level of national policies and strategies. 
And therefore, what I'd like to add is even, you know, at the national level, if the ministries decide or at least the Ministry of Health or other health authorities that are working with refugees and similar communities, if they wish to actually, you know, implement specific digital health interventions or integrate such digital health tools uh, within, you know, their uh, systems, they should also take into consideration these community-specific considerations. Otherwise, you know, what I'd like to say that we don't live in la-la land, so they have to be tailored to the target population that would be the beneficiaries of these interventions. So taking into account the factors that may influence their decisions, what are the challenges, how we could uh, mitigate these, would all play a role in designing these interventions and would also play a role in making these interventions successful and effective. Yeah, the way that we handled gender inequality and power dynamics in our project, we used a participatory design process that engaged stakeholders, researchers, and target populations, women, men, midwives, doctors, nurses, in co-designing right-based digital health strategies. You know, most women and midwives in our project perceived mobile technology as effective strategy to empower them because information helped women to convince their husbands to be involved in family planning, especially if the husband cannot accompany women to counseling. In this process, women were allowed to decide on the ideal characteristics of a potential digital health application for family planning that they want to use. For example, some illiterate women, they mentioned that they don't read, so they prefer to see videos. So we decided to include and to send, in addition to text messages, some useful videos for women to instruct them how to use family planning methods. Also, our developed mobile application and the website are expected to enable women's empowerment, allowing them to make the right joint decisions regarding family planning use. This is particularly important, Alex, as the midwives express embarrassment to explain the use of some methods to husband, for example, condoms, hence showing them a full explanation of these methods through a website would be complementary to the face-to-face counseling process. Coming back to the state of play and in the context currently in the MENA, I wanted to discuss a little bit more some of the specificities in terms of both of your projects occurring and being deployed within what's often called a fragile setting, you know, reflecting on what we've just discussed, but particularly your first points that you both mentioned in terms of the current situation in digital health in the MENA you know, different degrees of resources of prioritization by authorities to invest and how to invest, you know, what kind of initiatives with what purpose. I wanted to ask you both to reflect a little bit, you know, how does designing and implementing gender sensitive digital health interventions in a fragile setting 
contribute or create, you know, different dimensions, different narratives? And how have you seen those coming to play in your respective projects and settings? You know, designing this intervention, we had one thing in mind, its potential for, you know, scale up. So we thought what would be the elements that are needed to make it scalable? Okay, so the first thing we actually built a network of partners that would help us moving forward with its scalability. So we have two amazing partners on this project. We have the Ministry of Public Health in Lebanon and UNRWA. Both of them, they govern primary health care centers that are directly providing antenatal care services to uh, refugees and to disadvantaged Lebanese women in different you know, areas in Lebanon. So first we had to engage with great partners. We had to sensitize these partners as well on the importance of the uh, gender issue, you know, and the gender lens and engaging with communities to actually come up with a contextualized intervention. So these, we had to keep them in mind. Second, we had to uh, work on making our intervention low cost. So we thought about that if this intervention were to be scaled up, it has to be a low cost intervention for it to be, you know, potentially able to be applicable at, at the national level to cover different services other than antenatal care and maternal health, maybe other non-communicable diseases like diabetes, hypertension, or mental health, or other, you know, primary health care centers in different areas in Lebanon or at the level of different countries. The third is actually having a great understanding of the communities and of the settings. So fragile settings are much different than, you know, other settings. So uh, they are definitely different than urban settings that we have in our country. So we had to, you know, use our experience and expertise from the field to actually see what could be, you know, a potential factors that would play a role in increasing the acceptance of our intervention within the community. And uh, one thing to mention is that our intervention had the component of, you know, the mobile application that is targeted to health professionals, the OBGYN specialists and the midwives. So for these health professionals, we had to think in a way that, especially amid the economic crisis that Lebanon is, uh, is witnessing, we had to think in a way that what would make them, you know, use this application and be compliant with using it and, you know, closing it and, and opening it again to see what new questions they have. How can they score on that? How can win the prizes that we included as part of our application? So, so this whole, you know, multi-component intervention, it really included a lot of back and forth with the different target populations, with the partners, with the communities to be able to come up with, you know, gender sensitive interventions. I think it starts to combine, you know, the different elements of this conversation in terms of, you know, who needs to be involved and some of the key considerations from the onset. You know, what are things that you need to think about from the beginning? And now turning to Yusuf, you know, how did the fact that you were designing and implementing an intervention that would be rolled out in, in a fragile setting, and you mentioned engagement with refugee communities as well, just as Noor did. How did that inform the decisions that you made early on in the projects, but also during the implementation? Yeah, you are aware that humanitarian or fragile settings tend to accelerate the inequities in access to healthcare providers and services. So digital interventions can play a key role in promoting gender equality by challenging and transforming norms, attitude, and behaviors that create and maintain gender inequality. 
they can also build confidence and the skills to recognize and demand equal rights and access to resources and opportunities. So we are, in our project, we are working to develop a mobile application and electronic website to provide evidence-based information in local language, in Arabic language, on contraceptive choices and methods and provide also support for continued use of contraception through follow-up messages and reminders. So the mobile application and the website, we believe that they are expected to enable women's empowerment, allowing them to make the right joint decisions regarding family planning use. Moreover, an enhanced culturally sensitive and evidence-based training guide on effective couples counseling was developed for midwives and doctors to undertake effective family planning counseling. The providers in our project were trained to provide services in a way that ensures fully informed decision making, respects dignity, autonomy, and privacy, and is sensitive to individual needs and perspectives. In our project, as women, tend to be underrepresented in digital health and have limited access to technologies, we will involve their husbands with the aim to reduce these barriers and maximize participation. In our project, we made sure that the digital health component will not collect any personal data, but to provide information when clients need and want to preserve their privacy and anonymity. In our project, gender was also because of the current humanitarian issues is included in context analysis, formulation of the objectives, and identification of target audiences. Also, this issue was also considered when we designed our educational materials and messages and when we chose the channels of communication. Yeah, I think what you're sharing, Yusuf, resonated with Noor. <laughs> so something I'd like to add is that when we work with women in fragile settings, especially when we work on mobile health interventions, what we need to think of as well is their access to mobile phones, the access they have to internet connectivity. So all of these are also factors that we should take into consideration when actually deciding to go with a mobile health intervention in fragile setting. So for example, in our project, we knew for a fact that most of the women, be it refugees or Lebanese disadvantaged women, they actually own a mobile phone or they share a mobile phone with their husband or you know, with, with one of their family members. But definitely most of them had access to WhatsApp because they used this application mm -hmm. as a way to you know, communicate with their families, whether in Syria or Palestine or other areas of the world or, you know, within their families in Lebanon for the Lebanese women. And even if they don't have, you know, Wi-Fi or a data bundle, they actually had the service for WhatsApp activated on their phone. So there's a specific WhatsApp bundle that was activated on their phone. So this actually made us, you know, go with the decision of using WhatsApp as a platform. So in a nutshell, when we decide to implement a mobile health intervention, it is very important to take into consideration that access of women in fragile settings or in refugee areas or in former settlements or in rural areas may be, you know, affected by their access to 
connectivity or to mobile phones and so on. Thank you, Nora. And, and actually, you know, what you were just saying really reflects some, you know, of the observations we've made at Privacy International and, and the work that we've been doing with you in this project, but also with some of our other global partners around digital health in terms of what are the key considerations given when it comes to whether to deploy a digital health intervention in the first place. And then some of the more specific consideration that it really shows how comprehensive that due diligence and that approach needs to be that it's just it's not enough to think okay we, we've covered the data governance and security aspect and we've taken making sure that there's a data protection policy in place and that it will be enforced and that has informed the design in terms of the platform itself how it operates what kind of data is collected but there's also a need to understand you know at the individual and community level what are the needs? What is the context? And what is the initiative bringing? Is it responding to those needs and to those particular contexts? And what needs to be enabled? And you mentioned things around the digital divide and, you know, having access to devices, having access to internet at an affordable price as well, and those choices people might have to make. And those are the kind of things that we, we've been looking at and calling for that broader due diligence and assessment and approach to deploying digital health initiatives and I think something that comes up as well from what you're mentioning, Noor, is the fact that we need to be thinking about not only, let's say, what would be the official infrastructure, let's say, that's in place, but also what needs to be facilitated at the individual level, because some could argue that actually this is giving a lot more autonomy for people to directly access this information themselves, that they can, in a way, control the information through through the application. But it also makes a lot of assumptions about the fact that they have access to, to those devices, access to the internet, and things that need to happen at the individual community level to, to make it effective. And I was just wondering if you have further thoughts on that in terms of what would be some of the, the demands on those rolling out such initiatives and some recommendations or lessons learned you can share. I think that the first thing to keep in mind when designing such intervention is actually that we should raise awareness among both women and men on the importance of empowering women to make informed decisions related to their own health, that they have the right to actually access information that would be useful for their health and that they deserve the support of their husbands and of their families to take uh, decisions that would improve their health. That's first. Second, we have to keep in mind that many of our target population may not be aware about the existing services around them. So we need to always make sure that the target population or whoever we are targeting with our intervention is aware about what are the services being offered, what is covered, what is not, what can they have for uh, subsidized fee. So these decisions actually matter. And so when we design such a project, it has to be or it, it may need to be you know, coupled with some awareness sessions, with some informative messages about the services available, uh, so on and so forth. Third, I think we need to consider risks and develop mitigation strategies that could be related to external factors that may influence how effective our intervention would be. So for example, in our case, the COVID-19 pandemic at one point in time really affected our intervention because women were not able to go to centers because they were afraid of the COVID-19. Some centers actually reduced the number of their staff because they witnessed, you know, infections among staff members. We are also facing a huge, you know, a problem with the economic crisis. Some people cannot afford to 
a commute to the center. So many women actually visit the center walking because the centers are near where they live, but others have to, you know, pay for a taxi to, to take them to uh, the center, which they would actually make the decision not to pay for that and actually keep the money to use it for something else. So, you know, this economic crisis actually created an extra layer of conflicting priorities that, you know, would make the woman put her health in a lower position compared to other things. And my last recommendation is for all researchers who are involved in conducting digital health interventions, uh, we have to focus as researchers on always conducting gender analyses with a focus on technology and health access at the start and end of all digital health intervention. And we have to consider multiple, you know, vulnerabilities and the intersectionality of this with gender, with refugees, with socioeconomic status and with other factors that may actually influence our results. So for us to be able to better understand and interpret our results, we must always uh, take into consideration uh, conducting gender analyses for that purpose. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've both been running these different interventions for a couple of years and you probably had an idea in mind, you know, before you even started when you were designing them and thinking about your proposals and then to start implementing them. I I was just wondering, you know, was there anything that has emerged over the course of these last two years, something that you'd expected, but, and, you know, was confirmed or something that was unexpected and anything that caught your attention? Yeah, this is really very interesting. We had, you know, many things that we expected and confirmed, many things that were unexpected actually and discovered in our project. So in fact, in our project, we expected that women and the providers will perceive digital technology as beneficial for family planning. This is what really demonstrated clearly in our research. Digital technology was perceived by the midwives and the clients as an effective tool to increase the woman and their husband's awareness about family planning. It was perceived to be effective in increasing their access to information about the different family planning methods and their side effects, which will allow them to make better decision on family planning use. I remember that one midwife mentioned, if a woman used a method and severed from side ethics that I did not talk about before, she can open the application and learn more about the side ethics of different family planning methods. And I wonder, Noor, if any of what Yusuf just shared is something you've come across as well or anything different? Definitely, Alex. So I will talk about the two components of the intervention. First, the one that is targeting the women and their spouses. And the other is the mobile application that we developed for their health providers. So for the intervention targeting the pregnant woman, we actually expected that we are going to face challenges regarding, you know, the dynamics of the pregnant woman and their spouses, and that this will actually affect their willingness to go and pursue antenatal care services at the centers. Uh, However, what we didn't expect was actually the extent to which such dynamics can actually affect our intervention. So, for example, as we went through the project, we discovered that in some cases, 
spouses were actually deleting the messages for their uh, women so they don't read about such, quote-unquote, in their opinion, sensitive topics. So some men actually perceived these topics to be, you know, sensitive or private. Uh, although the messages we shared were very uh, simple, basic, you know, messages related to maternal health that every woman has the right to know about. Uh, so that's something that was very weird to know and actually caught our attention. The second thing is a simple act as a woman changing her phone number may actually interfere with the concept of the messages or actually reaching the woman and the woman actually reading the message. So very simple thing could actually stand in the way. And therefore, uh, sharing these lessons learned with the audience and with other researchers uh, would be very helpful for them in designing their future interventions. Another is the mobile application that we designed for health professionals. It was very interesting to see how much the health professionals actually appreciated the idea of gamification that we incorporated into the mobile application. So basically, we made learning a very interesting for them uh, instead of it being a boring process, you know, because the application was meant to be a professional development application where we share, you know, the best practices in their field so we can, at the end of the day, improve the quality of the services they provide. And so by integrating this component of gamification, making it, you know, trivial-like with the quizzes and scores and prizes at the end of each month, made them, you know, interested to actually keep playing with this application and keep learning and trying as much as possible, you know, to plug in the correct answers to be able to win. So this concept of gamification is a very innovative concept. The way it was integrated in the mobile app made us appreciate how innovative of a tool it is to be able to enhance the compliance of, you know, health professionals for such uh, apps, as well as the, you know, integrating the concept of artificial intelligence. So our mobile application is designed in a way to be able to detect uh, what category of the knowledge that the health professionals are trying to gain is actually the category they lack uh, information about. So, for example, if a midwife is using the app and we discover that she is you know, less skilled when it comes to managing pregnant women, we would start sending more questions related to patient management, pregnant woman management, for this specific midwife. And so she would gain more information about this topic. So these two components that are very innovative and sort of new to the field are actually, you know, worth discovering more and more in the future. I don't know if Yusuf, you, you had anything else you wanted to add? Yeah, you know, actually, Alex, I know that there is uh, an issue uh, regarding power dynamics in my country, but I thought that, you know, people becoming more educated, so the effect might be less, uh, you know, or mild to some extent. But we did not expect to hear distressing mm -hmm. and disappointing stories about power imbalance and violation including gender-based violence, because women, of course, are using contraceptives or they want to bear children. We heard a lot, actually, from women themselves and from midwives who are providing the services. One day when I was visiting the health center, I met with one of the victims, in fact, and I asked her why a victim of violence, of course, why, why is this violence? What are the reasons? She said, you know, she answered me, 
simply, I don't want to get pregnant and he is forcing me to, provided that he does not work and also he consume illegal drugs. Similar, you know, stories we heard, some stories ended by divorce, simply because husband want, husbands want more children and wants extended family, ignoring the health conditions of women. Interesting, Yusuf. I think maybe the conversation took us to a place where we were shedding light more on the negative observations that we had throughout the project just to be able to convey to our you know, fellow researchers and audience the, the lessons learned that they may take into account when designing such interventions. However, on the other hand, we actually discovered some pretty nice uh, observations throughout the project. So, for example, we heard from so many midwives at different centers that uh, they started, you know, seeing more husbands come with their wives to the centers seeking antenatal care services. So, so the pregnant woman would come alone and now her husband would accompany her. And we think that this could be potentially due to our intervention targeting the husbands. That's the first observation. The second is uh, we heard from the health providers working at the centers that more women are actually asking about what antenatal care services they could receive and which ones are the ones subsidized by the ministry or by UNRWA and how they can benefit from these services. So now, you know, the, the intervention was sort of an eye opener for these target populations about the services that they have the right to access and for free and they are eligible to. And so why not, you know, make use of these services and actually start, you know, benefiting uh, such opportunities. What would be your demands for others in this space in terms of, you know, having the opportunity, again, to focus on your projects and scalability, but also the broader approach to digital health initiative when it comes to Mediterranean care or antenatal care that you would expect, you know, people to take forward your observations and keep improving in the way how this is done and decisions made? Sure. I think my colleague Yusuf said that no one should be left behind. And I think now is the best time for us to push forward any intervention or any project or any innovation that would make sure that no one is left behind, be it a digital health intervention or any health intervention. And, you know, now is the time to actually focus on digital health and specifically low cost intervention, because these would be, you know, the trend for the coming future and the way to do things. You know, everyone now is holding a mobile phone. Uh, mm -hmm. From a child who is, you know, seven years old to uh, my grandparents are holding a mobile phone. So the mobile phone is actually a way of penetration for every single individual within their own houses, under their own tents. And so if we focus on designing gender specific mobile health interventions, then we would be at least contributing to reducing, I wouldn't say closing, reducing the gender gap that exists in health and in digital health generally in the MENA, but also, you know, in other regions of the world as well. Thank you, Noor. And, and from your perspective, Yusuf, you know, based on, on your own intervention and both what we discussed at the beginning, the fact that you're operating in a fragile setting, um, there are different stakeholders, you know, you're working very closely with the Ministry of Health as well. You know, moving forward, 
what what do you hope to see and hopefully seeing some of your observation from this project taken forward? Yes, uh, you know, uh, let me admit, actually, the quality of family planning services in uh, both countries are, uh, you know, low, especially, you know, because of the current crisis, uh, political situation and the huge burden of COVID-19 left on the health system. So uh, we believe that we want, you know, our intervention to make a change. We want to see that the cultural and social norms related to family planning and decision making to be changed so that the shared family planning decision making process and utilization of modern family planning methods improved in both countries. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to end by thank you both for sharing your experiences for the work that you've been doing. We'll keep in collaborating and we can't wait to hear about the next steps as you continue to work on your projects and hopefully take them to other things in the future, be it scaling up your projects and interventions and or also taking some of the incredible lessons learned and observation to then enrich and support discussions around digital health and ensuring that there is a gender-sensitive approach and human rights-based approach to digital health interventions. So thank you both very much for your time. And yeah, we look forward to keeping this this conversation going. Thank Thank you you so much, Alex. Highly appreciated. Very interesting. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you both. Thanks for listening and thank you to Alex, Yusuf and Noor. If you want to find out more about Noor and Yusuf's research, you can by going to the links in the description. If you want to find out more about PI's work on maternal healthcare, you can by going to pvcy.org forward slash maternal. Remember, you can tell us what you think of the podcast by visiting us at pvcy.org forward slash TP survey. You can sign up to be the first to learn more about our work at pvcy.org forward slash pod sign up. And we'll include some links to relevant articles and information in the description wherever you're listening or on our website pvcy.org forward slash tech pill. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you use. Music courtesy of Sepia. This is a podcast produced by Max Burnell for Privacy International.